Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your grace, for the gift of your word, and for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and through the reading of your word this morning, that we might be your workmanship, that we might rest in this gift of your saving grace. For we pray in the name of, the, of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we've been going through the <clears throat> sermon series, Save to Serve, in a Sunday school class, we've been working through the letter of the Ephesians, and there are a number of interesting parallels that came together, and so as our sermon this morning, I want to just sort of walk through this passage and um, talk about some of the themes, these corresponding themes that come up in the letter to the Ephesians. I read recently that on the border between Germany and Switzerland, I've never been there, but I, I googled it, and sure enough, it's there on Google Maps, so it must be there. There is a very large lake called Lake Constance, and there's a story in that region of a man who got lost in the wilderness while he was riding his horse, and he inadvertently rode across the lake uh, that was frozen in the wintertime. And when he gets across to the other side, the people tell him, do you realize where you just came from? You came from, you were walking across a frozen lake. And the man responds with horror and with gratitude to learn how close he came to his death, how perilous the situation was. Maybe some of us have a similar story in our lives when we did something that might not have been the best idea and got out of it by just a hair. Karl Barth, the theologian, remembered this story when he was preaching once to uh, prisoners in a Swiss prison, and he talked about this by saying that this is the human situation. We are all, in a sense, a man walking, unknown to us, the danger that we are in, walking on thin ice without really realizing it. In fact, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that the human situation is even worse than that story. It's not just that we were at great risk and we survived, but we were actually dead and captive and without hope. That's how he describes it in verses 1 through 3 of our passage this morning. And it might seem like he's overstating the case just a little bit. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And we might think, well, no, we're not really dead. We were, maybe we weren't experiencing all that we should have, but we were very much living. But notice how Paul phrases it. He says, you were dead in the sins and transgressions in which you once walked. You were walking around. You, were, you had all the appearance of real life, but in reality, you were not experiencing the life that I had for you. Many of us know the feeling of going sort of numbly from one day to the next, getting up, going to work, going home. Maybe the highlight of our day is a television show that we've DVR'd. How many of us have looked around and thought, is this really, is this really life? Is this really what God intended for me? Many of us, indeed, are walking around, but we are not really living. Not only, Paul says, were you not really alive, but you were also not really free he says that you were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, carrying out the desires of our flesh. Here again, some of us might want to protest and say, well, we weren't really captive. Maybe we made some bad choices, but we're free. We're not slaves to anybody. 
But we might want to consider again our so-called freedom. Think of all the ways in which we really are constrained and held captive to powers beyond our, our own desire. For example, how many women in our culture really feel free in how they appear in public? How many really feel a sense of great freedom in their external appearance? How many men feel really free in their life at work? Most of us, men and women, find it unable to take even one day a week off, and yet we somehow think that we are free. Without real life, without real freedom, and then in verse 3, Paul lands the final blow. He says, you are actually without hope. You were condemned. By nature, children of wrath, he puts it. This again, we want to say, Paul, calm down. It's not as bad as all that. But think about it for just a minute. Most of us are pretty sure about two things. We're sure that God is a just God, and at the same time we're sure that we will not experience his justice. That God's justice is usually determined, is usually for all the other people whose wrongdoings we see and experience. Certainly certainly deserved by other people, but most of the time we can find excuses for ourselves. This might not be the best uh, bet for our eternal security. When you think about it, it seems like a fairly arbitrary and wishful sort of thinking on its face. Maybe it really is the case that we are on thin ice apart from Christ, deluded as to how free and alive and secure we are. This first, these first three verses... Uh, are a fairly devastating diagnosis about the human condition apart from Christ. Having reached the rock bottom in verse 3, Paul telling us that we are without real life, without real freedom, without real hope, we have a very welcome phrase in verse 4 where Paul says, but God, but God, even being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In this one astonishing run-on sentence, might be a run-on sentence, Paul describes who God is, what he does, and why he does it. And right here in this passage we have the good news of the gospel Pastor Tim Keller says that the gospel is that you are, more, you are more lost and in need apart from Christ than you ever dared think, but that in Jesus Christ, you are more loved and secure than you ever dared hope. We see both, ba- both the bad news of the gospel and its corresponding good news to which it leads us in Christ when we continue on in verse 4. Who is God? Paul tells us, God is is one who is rich in mercy. He loves us not because we are already lovely or strong or appealing. Paul says God loves us even when we were dead in our transgressions. In that terrible condition in which we were, God loved us. And that is the great good news of God's love. We human beings, we tend to love things and people that are already beautiful and attractive and appealing. Lovable things are what humans love, but God's love extends to those who are not lovely or beautiful. In fact, God's love makes people 
lovely. This is what God's love does. It meets us where we are in all of our mess, in all of our despair, in all of our lostness, our death, our captivity, our hopelessness, and God changes the entire situation. I think we don't really fully grasp this very often, that we do not have to have it all together for God to love us, that God is rich in mercy, and because of His great love, not because of our great loveliness, but because of His great love, He meets us there and then makes us into a thing of beauty. Later on in Ephesians, Paul is talking about the relationships between husbands and wives, and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ left the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So God takes these, this dead, lost, captive people and by his love transforms them into something lovable that then he presents in splendor in the fullness of time. This is who God is. This is what he does. He does not find us lovely. He makes us lovely. He does not find us strong. His love makes us strong. He does not find us compassionate. He makes us compassionate. He does not find us doing pretty well already and then just gives us a little boost. Rather, he finds us dead and he brings us to life in Christ. And that is what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. He says God's being rich in mercy, loving us with a great love, he makes us alive together with Christ. He raises us up with Christ, and he seats us with him in the heavenly places. Notice how these three uh, things that God does for us in his love correspond directly to the three problems that we had in verses 1 through 3. We who were dead in Christ are made alive. We who were without freedom we are raised up in Christ. And the word that Paul uses there is used in Exodus to describe how uh, the people of Israel are to help uh, even livestock that are burdened under working, laboring animals that are burdened and stuck under a heavy load. They're supposed to raise them up. And so there's this image of captives being set free. We who were without a lasting hope, who were by nature children of wrath, are now, by God's great mercies, are seated with Christ in heaven. This is what God's love does. It transforms us. And why does he do it? Does he do it because he owes it to us for a lifetime of obedience? A reward for a job well done? No, he does it, as verse 7 tells us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. God does not have to love us. Have you ever thought about that? God did not have to love us. In fact, verses 1 through 3 tell us that he had every reason not to. We were rebels who followed after his enemy. We lived selfishly. We deserved judgment and not love. But because of who God is, his richness in mercy, his desire to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, he comes to us in his love and rescues us and does what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is why I think when we grasp in our minds, not just in our minds, but even in our hearts and our whole beings, what God has done for us, that we're like a, a man who crossed a frozen lake on horseback without even knowing 
what peril we were in. We just tremble thinking about the dire situation from which Christ rescued us. And then all of a sudden, this Christian life, which so often we misunderstand to be one of burden and obligation, it becomes one of joy and gratitude because we realize that we have been saved from something terrible. And we were saved by God's grace as a gift. There was nothing we did. As Paul says in verses 8 and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. And so when we really grasp this, the whole equation changes. All of a sudden, there is no room for ingratitude or resentment or a sense of entitlement in our spiritual lives. There's no room for boasting or pride or self-satisfaction either. This passage leads to, I think, four thoughts with which I want to close uh, this time. The first one is that if you think that God has to love you, well, you don't get the gospel. No matter how many Bible verses you've memorized, no matter how many sermons you've endured, I mean listened closely to, (laughs) no matter if you know better than to say it out loud, none of us are so good that God owes us his love. On the other hand, if you think God has to love you, you don't get the gospel. But on the other hand, if you think God can't love you, well, you don't get the gospel. No matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how many skeletons or shameful things are in your past, you are not so bad, none of us are so bad that God's love can't make us lovely. None of us are so bad that God will look at us and refuse us his love. He wants to give it to us, to present us in splendor as the church that we were supposed to be. If you think that God's love and grace that we receive is a result of the good works that we've done, well, we don't get the gospel. No matter how much money you've given to charity or how many hours you volunteered or how nice your mom thinks you are, we can stop trotting out that resume of good deeds because as Paul tells us right here, that's not even in the equation. Salvation is not a result of works. So none of us can boast. There's no point in boasting that didn't have anything to do with it. On the other hand, if you think that God's grace means that you don't need to do any good works, you don't get the gospel. No matter how okay you thought you were, our passage this morning and our time at the table where we see the symbols of God's broken body and shed blood, no matter how okay you thought you were, God thought our situation was desperate enough that he sent his own son to die to rescue us. So maybe it was some pretty thin ice that we were walking on in our lives apart from Christ. And being rescued in this way, being saved, being born again, it's just the beginning that starts a life of good, of good works. As Paul finishes in verse 10, he's, God still has work to do in us, and God still has work to do through us. He says we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them What have we been saying for the last several weeks? We've been saved to serve. And so now, whereas at the beginning of this passage, we were walking in this sort of half-life, when we were really dead in our trespasses and sins, now we are invited, because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, because of his transforming 
love for us, offered as a gift, we can now walk in the good works that God had intended for us from before the foundations of the world. So let us then, as those who trust in him, walk not no longer in our trespasses and sins, but in the new life he offers us as a gift in his son Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we have heard that we have been saved by grace through faith. Maybe we've heard it so many times, but the implications of it are shocking and stunning. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, for we are your workmanship. We pray you would help us to live in the truth of our free salvation, our rescue from certain death. And let us respond with lives of joy and gratitude and service. Lives that respond and give thanks for the gift you have offered us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand.